0: I guess you could look on a larger scale to see if bodybuilders live longer than the rest of us, oh, but good that, I don't think, think it's been that, that study's been done yet. Yeah. All
1: right, we'll, we'll do that one next. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is confused by the latest health study, as I am, by clowns. So we are going to be talking about clowns today, and I have to know whether or not you guys find clowns to be scary. I do.
0: I do, too. Clowns are creepy, but I don't know. Maybe we're not in the majority here.
1: I, I, I fail to understand who likes clowns and why they continue to exist, but... We will, we, will, we will talk about clowns, and we will see if there is anything positive about clowns. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am here, as always, with Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matt. How are you? Doing well. And I am also joined once again by Dr. Jess Lieber from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess.
0: Nice to see you both. Nice to be here
1: wonderful to see you again. And a reminder to everyone, if you can go over and head to the population health exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find lots of really interesting things over there. And also if you can give us a, a rating on iTunes or stitcher or whatever your podcast app site is that helps other people find us and we really appreciate it. So now On to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study, in all seriousness, on the effectiveness of clowns for reducing children's experiences of pain. I suppose it's not that crazy an idea, but it just strikes me as strange that it's a study. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the ethics of paying people to be vaccinated. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or Jess will tell us about frozen poop tools if uh, if you've got any updates. If you're on
0: lucky, if you're lucky, you'll get if, that one again.
1: If we're lucky. <laughs> so let's get into segment one. So we are going to talk about an article that looked at the effectiveness of of clowns on reducing childhood pain. It was published in the BMJ and it was entitled the effectiveness of hospital clowns for symptom management in pediatrics, systematic review of randomized and non-randomized control trials by first author, Luis Carlos Lopez, junior. You, how do you, anyone know how to pronounce?
2: Junior, Mm, junior.
1: I think
0: I it's, was, it's... probably Junior. It's probably... Junior. Junior. Okay, yeah. so by
1: first author, Luis Carlos Lopez Junior of the Federal University of Espírito Santo in Brazil. A couple of headlines on this one. Forbes says, clowns make hospitals less scary for young patients. USnews.com says, laughter as medicine, clowns help hospitalized kids cope. Newsmax says, study clowns help hospital kids heal and Eureka Alert said clowns may help children cope with pain and anxiety from hospital treatment. So Jess, can you start off by telling us what they did in the study and what they found?
0: Sure. This was an interesting study. And I think, you know, there's, there's elements, you know, in reading about the clowns that, that is a little goofy, but I think this, you know, this study is situated in a serious literature, kind of looking at ways to reduce stress and psychological distress and anxiety among children who are experiencing medical procedures and so just to contextualize the study kind of in the frame of that literature children who are in the hospital are often without a parent or a trusted adult and so there is obviously a big interest in pediatric medicine in these intervention techniques to try to reduce stress and promote healing and faster recovery for example among children who were in the hospital. So this study is kind of situated in that niche of the literature. And what these authors did, this was a systematic review of studies considering effectiveness of hospital clowns in reducing various psychological symptoms. So symptoms of anxiety, stress, and pain, defined in many different ways, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, among children and adolescents who were admitted to the hospital. So these were children who were inpatient for both acute and chronic conditions. So for many, many different sorts of conditions. So again, this was a systematic review of the published literature. They were looking across all available indexes of published literature for randomized and non-randomized controlled trials on this topic of the effectiveness or intervention studies looking at clowns and um, children and adolescents' experiences in the hospital so they had a few a few kind of focus areas. They were focusing on, as I said, children admitted to the hospital comparing clowns to the standard of care, which presumably does not involve clowns. So there was a they were drawing studies that were comparing clowns and non-clown intervention. And then again, studies looking at the effects of clowns on symptom management on clusters of symptoms, so kind of groups of symptoms in inpatient children. What these authors did, which I think is most notable in this analysis, is they used used a few different mechanisms for assessing bias, the risk of bias in the studies that they were drawing into their review, which then becomes, for us as the reader, very important in terms of how we, how we interpret their findings and how they interpret their findings through the paper as well, kind of what mm-hmm. are what's the quality, what's the risk of bias in the studies that they are using to generate this, this review paper, and then how do they interpret that? So they used two different scales, the Robin's eye scale for non-randomized studies and the ROB2 scale for randomized studies. So I, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not deeply enmeshed in this world of systematic review and meta-analysis, but I assume those of you who are, are familiar with these tools, um, but they use these tools to evaluate kind of the risk of bias. And these, these tools assign a risk score based on different characteristics of the study. Okay. So what they found when they did this analysis, they were, able to find 24 studies that made it through their inclusion criteria. They initially identified about 1,600 studies, 24 of which were were drawn into their study on the basis of their inclusion criteria. 13 of them were randomized control trials, 11 were non-randomized studies. One of the challenges they found is there was a real variety of the outcome measurements in these studies included self-reports of stress and anxiety, assessments of kind of facial expressions. In young children, which apparently is a tool, and then there were a handful of studies that used biomarkers, for example, of stress response, like cortisol, before and after the clown intervention, to try to analyze stress. But those studies were in the real minority. There obviously is a variety of exposure in terms of really understanding what what a clown does. You know, sometimes a clown is juggling, sometimes a clown is telling jokes, sometimes a clown is in full makeup, sometimes and the full suit or a goofy wig, or sometimes it's just someone who comes in. And kind of acting a little silly. So it was very hard to standardize what the exact exposure was across all of these different studies. So right up front, one of the challenges they had was the exposures were varied in the context of 24 studies, and the outcomes were also varied in the context of these 24 studies, which kind of fundamentally made it impossible for them to compare data, you know, kind of generated from these studies. So what the paper kind of morphed into was kind of a a narrative review of key points of these 24 papers, which was interesting in and of itself. They also found that most of these studies had either moderate or severe bias concerns. Mm -hmm. Again, that speaks to them not consolidating all of the data and doing a meta you know, a analysis, a statistical approach in this sort of context. But their overall conclusion was that, on balance, clowns seem to be helpful. They seem to, to reduce anxiety, help children adjust to, to complex and stressful psychological situations, have fewer worries, improve well being and emotional response. There were a few studies that focused on cancer patients in particular. The authors noted that this was an area that had not received a lot of attention, the role of clowns in cancer treatment for children. The authors towards the end of their discussion section, which I thought was interesting, introduced me to a word called coolrophobia, which means phobia (laughs) of clowns. And they noted that, um, you know, they didn't quite know how that might've played in. They did you know, of their 24, some of them did notice, um, did not observe an associate, a benefit associated with clowns. And so they said, maybe clown phobia plays in, maybe there's you know, clown phobia at a certain age. You know, maybe in the like preschool age or or younger toddler toddler age ranges where children experience a lot of stranger anxiety anyway. You know, maybe if you see a clown and the baby's already exper you know that that would be like really bad. Maybe the results are not generalizable to adults who might you know as we were saying might not find clowns always so thrilling. But so there was a lot of narrative discussion in this paper. But overall. They found a positive, a positive effect of the clowns.
1: Overall positive effect of clowning. So before I turn it over to you, Chris, and I, I want to get your take on what you thought of this particular study, I do want to point out that before and after the clown intervention is sounds like the title of either a movie or a book <laughs> that I would not want to either watch or read. And the second thing I want to say is that the majority of the data from this study, uh, from this review, the majority of the studies came from Italy and Israel, which kind of surprised me. I don't know why exactly. I guess I I, I would have assumed there would be um, a fair amount of, of the data from this would have come from the U.S. just because of our being a population size, and then after that, I don't know where I would have mm. thought it would come from. But maybe Brazil, um, given that these guys were all Brazilian researchers. Yeah, or or who I don't know where. But anyway, Chris, what did you what did you think of this particular study?
2: Well, you, Matt, you're you're always fond of saying what
1: was your Bayesian prior? And, okay. And, and, I, and, I, I, I I laugh I, at that because can I tell you what mine is? Sure. Mine was I wrote down
2: what in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my Bayesian prior was that this, that, that this would work, that this should work. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I mean, my experience in, in hospitals, and I don't have that much experience, of course, in, in children. Uh, Children's hospitals, because I, you know, I trained in adult medicine, but my experience in hospitals is that that they're grim and depressing, and and sad, and and scary, and impersonal, and the whole idea of trying to bring in, you know, someone to cheer people up and tell a story and maybe juggle and you know make people laugh—it's just such an appealingly obvious way. Of of making the whole hospital experience a little bit less grim. It's a distraction. It's a way yep. of of bringing in a little bit of life and color. And mm-hmm. I I I was, you know, I felt like yes, this 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 ought to work in the same way that I think that you know, bringing around therapeutic dogs right. uh, to visit patients at their bedside is such a nice a way of relieving stress and bringing back a sense of normalcy. So I, I was I was. You know, really encouraged to see that the, the you know, the overall results were, you know, even though the, you know, the, the source data were not very, you know, rigorous studies, I guess, but in aggregate, they, they, you know, pointed towards, yes, this seems to be a, a generally good thing. And it kind of makes sense that it would be a good thing. The other thing I I just I wanted to notice in passing, was that this was one of the most systematic of systematic reviews I think I've ever mm-hmm. read. It, it really I'm just it felt like a like a textbook example. If I was ever to teach students or attempt to teach students how to do a, a systematic review, I'd say read this paper, you know, because they've really laid out a map for for how you how you approach each step in the problem. And I thought they you know I thought it was a very you know meticulous job, impressive in terms of its, its sort of scholarly rigor. I. Th- yeah, no. so I, I was, I was very, uh, I was very positive about it. I was, I guess, initially skeptical, but but I still felt like this was, uh, you know, this was this was a, a good piece of work. And so I wanted to congratulate them.
1: So, so you would say this was a, a pretty serious clown study?
2: Yeah, I, I guess. Well, the clowns weren't serious. The clowns were jolly. But yes, that's that's what I mean.
1: Okay, so let me back up a little and just say that you know the way that we do things is we look up, you know, we, we keep our eye on the literature and then send around studies that we, you know, kind of catch our eye and then we give feedback on what we think would be interesting. And I so was the one who sent this one around and I was a little surprised that you both reacted positively to this one. I would, I kind of thought this was one that you all would pass on. So I was, I was kind of interested in that. As far as the, um, you know the the rigor of the so there I, I agree with you Chris that the rigor of the meta-analysis or the review was was quite high I mean they really they really spent a lot of, of time and effort in evaluating the quality of these studies and trying to determine what was a good study and what was what was not in term for the process of, of review and for the process of deciding what to put in the studies themselves though of course were of of lower quality, because there are all kinds of reasons that you wouldn't be able to do a, you know, a highly rigorous, even a randomized trial of, of clowning for one, you, you can't blind people as to whether or not they, they saw a clown. You could blind the <laughs> data collectors, I suppose, but you can't really, you know, people tend to notice if a, a clown walks
2: in the room. Yeah. And, and you can't use like a placebo clown whose, whose, whose job it is to be depressing, <laughs> and well, to tell sad stories. I mean, that, that would be terrible. You could never do okay. that. So yeah. there's, there's not really, it's very hard to do mm-hmm. a controlled trial around this.
1: Okay. So I know I call the placebo clown as a band <laughs> name.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, We're sorry the clown couldn't yeah. come today. I mean, but, I suppose you could do it that way, but.
1: Well, so, you no, so you're right, Chris, in that, that. You know, you there's sort of no placebo, but but you could use what are referred to as attention controls here, where you have, you know, rather than comparing clowning to nothing, which presumably is is what the comparison was in most cases, you could compare clowns to you know some other form of distraction to see if what really matters is is clowning or if it's just, you know, doing anything that really matters. And anything you can do to distract kids will reduce their pain. And so we don't – I suppose we don't get much of a sense from this study as to whether or not there is anything really special about clowning in terms of a form of distraction or whether it's just, you know, one of the many forms that you could use.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that, you know, there's a lot of intangibles. Right about like what what is it that brings brings joy by watching a clown or really you know any any performers any any amusing activity, and 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 how do you how do you measure that, so you know the, the the authors here approach that question in kind of the reverse, which is that they they try to look for evidence of pathology reduction in pathology that is to say you know did their anxiety levels measured on some scale go down did their you know, sensation of pain improve. You know, Jess mentioned the biomarkers. You know, did cortisol levels fall objectively, suggesting that you know there was less activation of their you know the sort of fight and flight mechanism. All of those things, but but those are kind of unidimensional because they're looking at at the adverse effect of the thing that's being treated by the clown, which makes sense. But you know, and I'm so I'm not criticizing. Th- you know the decision to use those as study endpoints i think those those are those are very logical ones but i i would also just you know wonder if one could measure you know the joy more directly. Mm-hmm. Like how happy does it make as opposed to like how anxious, how less anxious are the kids yep. as, as opposed to mm-hmm. how, how happy are the kids to see the clown there. And, and, you know, when a child is taken in for anesthesia for surgery and the clown goes in with them and instead of holding the child's hands and making jokes, I mean, how did the, how happy are the children at that moment? How distracted are they? So it just seems that there was, there are so many ways one could look at the, the effect of the clown beyond what, what has been done. And and again, this is this is not really a criticism. What they did do, because mm-hmm. the results are interpretable, and and yet, it, you know, it,
0: it seems to me that this is in some way scratching the surface.
2: Yeah, sure.
0: I, I was interested also in in whether the effects that they observed were due to the clown as a human being interacting with the child in a one-on-one sort of capacity? Like, could that have been a nurse, for example, who's not dressed in a clown costume, but just is with the child and maybe, you know, trying to keep the mood light or, or trying to, you know, holding the child's hand, like Chris is saying, or engaging with the child. Did it have to be a clown or was it just that it was a person who was with the child? Like, and so it's kind of that issue of where does the funniness and the silliness, how does that, fit into this whole picture. That was my interesting question. Like, what if it had been a puppy? Like, I don't think you could bring a puppy necessarily into pre-op. You know, maybe that's the difference is that some of these other interventions you couldn't bring into these really stressful situations. Um, but how did the clown differ from another person who was not dressed up as a clown? And was there something in in the clowning itself? Or was it just that it was a person in that environment that helped reduce the child's stress?
2: hmm you know, I I was given a book last year for Christmas by one of our research fellows, Lauren Eder. Uh, it's Atul Gawande's *Being Mortal*. It's a really mm-hmm. great book, and so mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to say thank you, Lauren. I I have enjoyed this book. But there's a very poignant section that's described in the book that that, that I think has many of the same elements of what we're describing, and I and I think it gets to the point that you, you you're you're. You know, focusing on here, Jess, which is that it's not the clown per se, but it is the humanity, right? The clown mm-hmm. is a method for delivering hum- humanity, but it could be a magician, it could be, it could be many things. And and in this in this story that that uh, Gowande narrates, he describes this sort of young, very talented, recent Harvard Medical School graduate who chooses to go back to his rural home in upstate New York and to eventually take a job as a director of a nursing home. And, and he, he describes his, his arrival here as being sort of astonished because he doesn't really know how to, how to approach the problem, the real problem of the nursing home, which is that, and he describes this in a, in a very beautiful way, I think, which is also somewhat sad, which is that you know, there are these three plagues of nursing homes, boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. And, and so what he does is to lobby the owners of this nursing home, the directors, to allow him to bring in animals into mm-hmm. the nursing home. And mm-hmm. so he, he, gets a, he gets several dogs and several cats, and he also gets parakeets for every single patient's room in the nursing oh. home. So okay. every person has a bird and they're supposed to take, you know, to some degree, take care of the bird. But, you know, the the, the staff make sure the birds are, are fought, are, you know, their cages are cleaned, et cetera. But the effect of this was really astonishing as he as he describes it. And there was one vignette where he, he talks about this man called Mr. L who had been admitted to this nursing home because his wife had died. And then s- shortly after his wife died, he was engaged in a very serious car crash that almost killed him. And he was brought into the nursing home as being sort of like you know, unable to care for himself. And, You know, quickly became almost catatonic. He just spiraled down and became depressed and wouldn't interact and wouldn't get out of bed and wouldn't eat and wouldn't do anything and really looked like he was just heading towards the grave. And then this program began and they brought the dogs in, they brought the cats in, they brought the parakeets in, and and what he described is that the birds particularly drew this man out of his shell and that he began eating again. He started dressing himself. He started getting out of his room and then he started volunteering to walk the dogs every day. So he became verbal again and and walked the dogs. He took that on as his personal task, and three months later, he went home and left the nursing home.
1: Hmm.
2: I mean, it was just such like a, an example of the same thing that we we focus so much on the pathology, the production of pathology, and yet in you know in in many contexts, I think the nursing home is a particularly clear one. We we, we sort of see the problem as being a medical problem when in fact it might be more, you know helpful to view it as a humanitarian problem and that our job is not to simply keep people safe, though that's important, but is also to provide them reasons to live.
1: Yeah, I think those are really good, good points, Chris. And I think we don't we clearly don't pay enough attention to some of the the emotional and, and mental health issues that go along with or that determine health in, in many cases. So I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I do wonder, Chris, I mean, you know, to, to that point. Does it matter at all that these are subjective outcomes you know the the outcome of of you say you know you could do happiness or in this case just reduction of of stress you know these are subjective outcomes which are potentially influenced by the the just you know seeing the you know knowing that something is being done. On the other hand, maybe that's the point, and therefore you don't care that this is a subjective outcome that is, you know, is is susceptible to being influenced by knowing that you're getting the intervention. So I'm I'm unclear on whether or not it matters here.
2: Yeah, I guess I feel the same as you, because in in, in a sense, we are, you know, you, I think all three of us in our our research careers tend to focus on very categorical. Endpoints. I mean you, you you know, for example, you, you are interested in and in how well patients are retained in, in mm-hmm. HIV treatments, yep. uh, according to different models. And so that endpoint is very clear. And I I focus on child survival and infectious rates. And so do you have respiratory syncytial virus or don't you? You know, it, it's it's clear. And and Jess, you know, you're in environmental health and, and and so you're you have a set of exposures, presumably, that you're looking at that mm-hmm. either exist or don't exist and lead to a health outcome or don't. And 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 here we are dealing with this sort of social and I guess somewhat gray area difficult to pin down, difficult to categorize and and yet you know obviously based on our shared experiences as humans is one of the most important things there is about life, which is not mm-hmm. just to live mm-hmm. but to be free of pain, to be free of fear and sadness, to have joy and and uh, and those are constructs that are not generally seen much in the medical literature. and and i I, I suppose it's a shame
0: no, I think they're I think they're fundamentally the hardest to measure. I mean, that's that's part of what's so interesting about this paper is that, you know, there's all these challenges with how, how do you how do you measure what a clown is doing? And yeah. then how do you measure the effect of that cl- of, what, of the benefit or the, you know, the drawback of of that clown exposure? And it's really complicated when it has to do with happiness or like you're saying, when it has to do with well-being or comfort, especially if the immediate you know, maybe there's a longer term benefit Mm -hmm. and maybe it's a 15 minutes with a clown in the hospital room relates to a child recovering two weeks sooner from a procedure. You know, maybe there's a a lag effect between the exposure and the outcome. So I think it's really hard. These are really important. I think you're exactly right. It's like, how do you measure human connection? And then how do you measure the effect of human connection?
1: And so, given how important that you know this seems to be, are you at all surprised by how little data there actually is? Because these are, I mean, in some sense, you can understand why there haven't been a lot of studies done, because it's probably not something people are paying a lot of attention to, trying to evaluate. It's just something you you do or you don't do, and you don't spend a lot of time. On the other hand, it's been around for a long time, and so in some sense, I was a little surprised there wasn't more data.
0: I had wondered actually if, you know, if, you know, clowning seems pretty inexpensive in a hospital, for example, that maybe, maybe clowns are one of the less expensive interventions to bring a little bit of humanity into the hospital. You know, obviously it would be more expensive if you, us, you know, if a nurse was assigned to a child who was going through a difficult procedure and the nurse, you know, was going to get to know the child before the procedure for a certain amount of time and then stay with them in a concerted way and kind of bring some entertainment. And, you know, I think nurses do this anyway, Mm -hmm. but I think it would be more, I think other interventions might be more expensive and more time consuming. And so I, my, my sense with clowning is it's almost like, what's the harm, (laughs) right? Like you might as well just do it with, analyzing it because what is the, is there really a drawback to bringing in a fairly inexpensive intervention? That was kind of my, my take on it. Unless yeah.
1: unless, of course, like me, there are kids who are right. <laughs> freaked out Free by clowns. Right,
0: right, right. And there were, I mean, in these studies, there were there were kids who, who were freaked out by the clowns. And yeah. the authors talk about a study uh, that was not in their in their analysis, but another study where they just kind of, you know, have, what's the, the prevalence of, of being afraid of clowns? And it was like 80-some odd percent of girls, for example, were afraid of clowns at certain ages. And there was an age effect and a gender effect, and so it's certainly not unusual for children to be afraid of clowns. And I think the authors were aware of that.
1: Okay, well, we we can move on, but before we do, I just want to comment on a couple of last things before we do. One is that I I really enjoyed that they paid a lot of attention to how they defined a clown, which they they spent a lot of time going through, and and they note, and I you know sort of vaguely remember this from the movie, but they say the the American physician Patch Adams started clowning for patients in the mid nineteen seventies, and was considered a, a pioneer in therapeutic clowning, and I remember the the movie. Patch Adams uh, from I don't know was that the 80s or 90s? But mm, Robin um, Williams, right? With Robin mm. Williams, yeah. Which I, you know, sort of didn't even think about when I when this paper came up. The second thing is they spent a lot of time in this paper talking about how they would go about disseminating the results, so clowning websites with you know going to troops and and which I just you know I just thought was interesting because you don't normally see that in 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 scientific papers, particularly in you know the the top medical journals. Okay, let's move on to our second segment. So in our second segment, we're going to talk about a paper on the ethics of paying for vaccination. We're in the middle of the rollout of the COVID vaccine, or I suppose that we're at the beginning of the rollout of the COVID vaccines. And this discussion is is motivated by a comment in JAMA by Emily Largent and Frank Miller. And the title of it was Problems with Paying People to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Now I set this up as ethical issues, but it's really probably just issues in general. So they they start off by noting that obviously we're gonna need a lot of people to get vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccines in order to get to the point of herd immunity, and we know that there is vaccine hesitancy out there, that there are a lot of people who are saying, at least in the US, that they won't get vaccinated. The Seems like the biggest predictor of, of not wanting to get a, a vaccine here in the United States is identifying as a Republican, which I thought was an interesting fact. So there have been a couple of different proposals for ways that we could increase the incentives for getting a vaccine, some of which have been proposals to actually pay people to get vaccinated. So one proposal was to pay people $200 initially, and then condition the uh, condition of remaining $800 on reaching some kind of a va- national vaccine uptake level. So everyone gets $200 when, when you get your shots. But then if we as a country get to the, you know, say 70% threshold that we need for herd immunity, then everybody would get an additional $800. Another approach would be to just pay people, you know, what what proposal was $1,500 via check or direct deposit. So you just get the money for getting vaccinated. They say there are problems with this approach. So the the benefits, of course, would be that presumably you would incentivize people to want to get the, the vaccine, even if they may not have wanted to already. But they say, you know, people have a moral duty to be vaccinated. And so paying them for something that they have a moral duty to do is is not something that we should be doing. Second, they say it's not a particularly prudent investment because many people are going to get vaccinated anyway. So spending money that you wouldn't have to spend in order to get people to do something that you want them, many of them would do anyway, is not a good use of of financial resources, particularly in a time when we are constrained financially with the, the interventions that we need to do because of the lockdowns and things like that they suggest this idea that people are saying that you know paying people money is is as an incentive is coercive they point out that that is incorrect that it is not coercive but it but that it may be seen as taking advantage of people who have lost their jobs who are who are in poverty or who may be disadvantaged and finally they noted that the Vaccine hesitancy concerns are rooted in largely in the speed of the development. and so it's not clear that offering a financial incentive would overcome those concerns. And so I, i'm I'm really curious your thoughts on whether you all think that this is something that we should be doing. Jess, I'll start with you. do you do you how do you react to the idea of paying people to get vaccinated?
0: I, I lean towards not paying people to, to get vaccinated for a few reasons. I mean, one, there is, I'm not, a, I'm not exactly sure the word I'm thinking of, but there is kind of an authoritarian structure to that. It reminds me of something that is done like in an elementary school classroom, especially the idea of where, you know, if everyone behaves and is quiet during math period, then the whole class gets extra recess, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like, the idea that sort of structure to me strikes me as condescending is the word i was thinking about that you know kind of a condescending approach towards people's ability to make a decision in in their with their own free will you know i think i think as a public health or medical community we have an onus to engage in that conversation and try to encourage people to move in the direction we think is in the best interest of public health which would be to get vaccinated however i think the idea of of putting money behind it feels feels a little bit inappropriate to me, I think because it feels a little authoritarian (laughs) in that same sort of way, like a teacher-student sort of dynamic, the other idea that I thought was really interesting from this piece was their first comment about the moral imperative of getting vaccinated and that being an important component in public health interventions and not wanting to diminish that. And I thought that was actually an important thing to think about that I hadn't thought about before that we, you know, we don't pay people to get other vaccinations. We don't pay people to engage in other behaviors that are good for public health more generally. And if we set that you know, if we kind of set the example right here now, does that mean that then people will be expected to be paid to get the flu shot, for example, or they you know, expect to be paid to, to have their kids fully vaccinated. And what are the downstream consequences of putting a money monetary incentive into, you know, some of these behaviors when maybe our, our better role as public health folks is to engage in the discussion and to, you know, to kind of be part of that larger dialogue as people make their decision. Yes or no.
1: Okay. Chris, what's your, how do you react to the idea?
2: Well, it's interesting. I reacted negatively and then positively and then negatively as I read the paper. So my, I found that my, you know, my opinion kept shifting and I, and it's, I think it was shifting because I kept thinking of, you know, you know, some things that I disagreed with that the author had said, which I, I think were, were, were not correct, but also trying to sort of extrapolate this, this idea to other contexts. So in terms of, of, the thing i disagreed with them is that they're saying we've got a you know more than 75% of the population needs to be vaccinated for the country to achieve herd immunity and that is that is obviously false right the the, the herd immunity calculation is based on the number of people who are immune not vaccinated mm-hmm. because vaccinated doesn't necessarily Leave you to be immune. Mostly, it does, but there are other ways to become immune, such as being infected with COVID nineteen and recovering. So both of those contribute to herd immunity. So it, it it what that is that is categorically false. But the 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 thing that kind of stuck on in in me, and you mentioned it in in, in reference to influenza vaccines, is like it's basically how much risk are we willing to absorb or or how safe do we wish to be because influenza as you are i think you were alluding to kills a lot of people every year right and we don't shut down society for influenza influenza kills in a bad year 50,000 us citizens and in a good year 10,000 citizens that's a lot of people right mm-hmm. so it you know compared with covid-19 it's a very small number but it is a it is a number and so is you know are we you know, does our, our risk tolerance for COVID-19 continue once the, you know, once a sufficiently high number of people have been you know, either immunized and are now immune or have experienced COVID and have recovered such that the the actual mortality rate for COVID-19 in the future is something more akin to what we see with the seasonal flu. And at that point, you know, w- do you know do we adapt our risk profile in response or do we somehow see this disease as being distinct and therefore our risk tolerance must be much much lower and i and i, I don't see any reason why that should be so so i, I mean I, I felt like there there was a a premise that the the argument stemmed from that i think was a little bit too simplistic uh,
1: the when when you say that you mean the argument for paying people
2: Yes, that it. It Which starts with the assumption. It starts with the assumption that we we have to have, you know, basically perfect protection against COVID nineteen. We've got to completely shut it down. And while, obviously, that is the ideal, it is also true that as one approaches that threshold for herd immunity, you're seeing disease transmission rates and hence mortality rates drop, 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 drop until they start to the the epidemic starts to to mathematically extinguish itself. But but it's not the, like you know. Things are terrible, and then when you hit a herd immunity, things are great. That's not how it works. It's a it's a transition, right? So somewhere in that transition, you know we are we have changed the risk profile of this disease to to varying extents, and at some point, the risk profile essentially starts to fall to zero. But does it need to fall to zero b- before society can resume? And obviously, that is not the case because there are many infectious diseases that are endemic in our society that we tolerate, and they kill people every year, and not every Everybody has to wear a mask at all times because of the influenza. Maybe we should. but you know as a society we have we have not felt that that was that was an imperative, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna take the other side. I think this is a, a good idea. and I, you know my reasoning for this is is in two directions. Number one is that I I think we pay people, to do things all the time, behaviors that we want people to engage in through, you know, we may not pay them directly by depositing a, a, you know, money into their bank account, but we do it through financial incentives, typically through, through tax breaks. So if Mm -hmm. we want people to, to buy homes or, you know, then we, you know, we have tax breaks around to make it more desirable to people financially to invest in a home or what, you know, we want, people to go out and buy hybrid cars or battery operated cars or solar power, we we make it financially advantageous to them to do those things that we want them to do. And this is a case where we have resistance to something that we think is a good thing for the, the entirety of the society. And so we, we pay people. It does not require anybody to do it, but it, it provides more of an incentive to do something that we think is important for everyone. The second reason that I think it's a good idea is, you know, Chris, your your point is absolutely right. On the other hand, we are theoretically in a race here against time. And it's not just a race to get the US population vaccinated. It's a race to get the world vaccinated because, you know, in theory, if mutations in the virus develop such that they become resistant to the, to the vaccine, then we are back in a place where we, We've got to sort of start over again, and we could end up with, you know, high mortality. Now, I'm not saying that's a likely scenario, but I'm saying it is a theoretical possibility. And so, if a large segment of the population chooses not to get vaccinated, you know, we, the, those of us who feel it's important to get vaccinated, are potentially in a position where we're 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 back to square one. So, I I just see it as I don't have a a moral concern about paying people to. To do things that we think are good for society, and I, I think this is a case where it, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would, I would add. I think there's. I mean, I, I've been thinking in my mind. Kind of, you're certainly correct that there are. There are things that we encourage financially in society that we view as towards the public good to the extent that we put money behind it as a society. You're saying purchasing homes or I'm thinking about environmental regulation, for Mm -hmm. example. There's incentives that companies face to reduce emissions or to, you know, whatever it is to for environmental protections. And I wonder if there's a fundamental distinction between something having to do with your like as a medical intervention versus something you might buy or some sort of externality you might admit as mm-hmm. a as a mm-hmm. company for example is there something different about society saying you know if you get a shot <laughs> something that's going into your body that's affecting your medical care is that distinct from saying we want to encourage you know we're going to put a tax on so you know or on sodas for example which is also something that could go into your body or there's some sort of other you know, some sort of other tax on a public behavior? Is it different if it's a medical intervention? And also, is it different in a moment of pandemic compared mm-hmm. to not a moment of pandemic? Like, mm-hmm. do we have a different structure for these decisions right now because we're living in this crisis moment? If we were not in this crisis moment, would we view it differently? And does that matter? Does that matter if we would view this decision differently if we were not in a crisis moment?
1: I, I think yes, the answer is yes. Yeah. We we it. It is different because it's a medical intervention. I, I do agree with that. And I think that that, you know, does alter the calculation. But for me, it doesn't alter it enough to make it something that we wouldn't want to do. And I would also say yes to your second point, if I could remember what your second point was. But I know that I thought it was a a yes. What was your second <laughs> does point? The,
0: does the crisis change our oh, moral calculation? Yeah. Right? I, yeah. I,
1: again, I think it does. I think we are not going to pay people to get... Influenza vaccines, and yes, it is theoretically possible in my mind that if we pay people to get the COVID vaccine and then we don't pay them to get the influenza vaccine, that influenza vaccine rates could drop. But you know, we 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 do this all the time. We we worry about you know but let, risk let me compensation ask you, and they rarely happen. Go ahead, let Chris.
2: Me, let me let me ask you a, like a, a you know a question to to put the to, to restate the context. Mm-hmm. So right now there's there's a lot of concern about vaccine hesitancy, which is, you know, the genesis for this paper. Yep. So, you know, at some point, right, we will see that society partitions into those who have been vaccinated and are now protected, and those who have refused to be vaccinated and are continuing to be at risk. But now they are increasingly at risk to themselves within the group of, that is to say, mm-hmm. vaccine refusers. They are now Exposing other vaccine refusers because the vaccine acceptors have all been vaccinated. Yep. So the the you know the 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 risk that you know I think we were so focused on at the beginning was that the refusers are putting the acceptors at at risk, and and that was true, but that is that will become less and less true. So at the point when they start to become more risk really unto themselves, does that change the way society feels about you know trying to encourage them? to to change their position or do we just say you've made your decision and you you know are now responsible for the consequences of your actions
1: yeah i mean i think you're i think you're right chris uh, if this didn't have any potential repercussions for those who are getting the getting vaccinated that i think that that might be true i just think we don't we don't know that yet we don't mm-hmm. know whether continuing to allow the virus to circulate in you know fairly unchecked within a subset of society because as you point out these you know people who don't get the the vaccine tend to congregate together and so you'll have continued transmission for a while within subpopulations and then and, they will
2: eventually become immune by the way or uh, true
1: true if but but again it's you know it's going to move a little bit slower because there's just you know fewer Total people infected, and and if that leads to resistance that affects everyone, then it's a problem. If it doesn't, then then I would agree with you.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that there's a spectrum here. There's a, there's a gradient of of uh, scenarios where we would want to be, you know, to provide this incentive, or maybe gradations of the incentive. You know, if 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 you were a you know someone who works in a nursing home, for example, I think that. There, it might not be an issue of of an incentive. It might be a requirement for your employment that you get the mm-hmm. vaccine because you're exposing highly vulnerable people to this potentially deadly disease. And so I, I I I sort of feel like that's an example where there is no you know there are very few exceptions to accepting the vaccine. But and on the way other end of the spectrum, you think. You know, what, what about people who live in a rural area who have very low, you know, very small social networks and are very unlikely to transmit or be exposed because of their sort of a, their isolation? And, you know, they may also be hale and hearty and unlikely to, uh, you, know, uh, t- you know, to experience a very severe consequence if they are infected. So it, it's not an all or nothing. Right? Yep. The, yep. the the complicating factor here is that we all exist in this web of interactions. And of course, COVID nineteen spreads from person to person to person to person to person. That's how it moves. And so each person who is infected has the potential to, you know, perpetuate a change of transmission that eventually leads to someone who's vulnerable. That's that's the main concern.
1: Yep. Yep. Any any Jess, any last thoughts before we move on?
0: I thought one of their more interesting comments was in their last point at the article about whether or not paying people would increase vaccine hesitancy, because the implication behind it would be we understand that this is risky, <laughs> right? Yeah, we understand right. that you don't want to do it. I was, yeah, I was interested in that too, that they made that comment that it's quite possible that putting a dollar value behind getting vaccinated is an acknowledgement that hesitancy is legitimate in this context. And you have a reason to be concerned and whether or not, and, you know, they, the authors made the point that that could even worsen vaccine hesitancy for some people who are maybe considering it. And they're like, well, now I'm definitely not going to get it because, you, you know, the implication is that this is, the, you know, that I have to be paid to take it. So I thought that was an interesting argument as well, and not one that I had heard before in this discussion.
1: And I, w- I would agree. I mean, I do think that is that is a real, you know, it is theoretically a possibility. I don't know that it overcomes my my feelings that we should try something like
2: this, but I, I do acknowledge that that is, it is potentially a possibility. Mm. I, I would prefer that the incentive be You know, really targeted at you know allowing people to engage in certain behaviors again, such Mm. as you know you can go to a bar, uh, you can go to in an indoor dining area and have a nice meal, but you've got to be vaccinated in order to do that. Yeah, that's that's another way to do it. If you know now we're not saying you know here's here's five hundred bucks if you get a vaccine, we're saying now you can go back to doing things that you enjoy in your life and. You know, we consider you to be zero risk to yourself and to others, and and so here is your reward. You know, society suddenly opened up to you. That seems like a much better incentive in some ways. Mm. Yep,
1: mm. There would be certainly a a different approach to the same idea. Yep. All right, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And uh, Jess, you wanna you wanna go first this time.
0: Sure. So, so carrying on in my, my thematic discussions about animal research, this one's a little bit different. This was a study that was published about a year ago that I admittedly thought of because I have a daughter in fifth grade who's reading the book Tuck Everlasting. I don't know if either of you read that one. Oh, I, saw or the movie. You... I never read yeah, it. Yeah, right. About like living forever and what are the consequences of living forever. And so there was this study that that came out last year that was looking at this diet dietary supplement that bodybuilders take. It's called AKG alpha ketoglutarate. Mm. And, and so, you know, some toxicologists said, let's give it to mice and let's give it to worms and let's see what happens. And what they found is that it extended their life dramatically and specifically in worms. Yes. In worms, they say, let's see, it was found that it extended the lifespan by more than 50% in a tiny, worm with a long name that is too long for me to read. And they also found a similar effect in, 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 the, in the study of, of mice, that they found this life-extending virtue in this dietary supplement that it seems like is available over the counter. And what the researchers have said is that it's part of the, medi- the metabolic cycle that transitions food into energy on the cellular process. They didn't go into great detail, at least in the blurb that I was reading about what the science is behind it, but I thought that was interesting. This is you know, not something we're hearing too much about in the time of COVID, <laughs> about medications that could extend your life and not to say that we would want to move down the path of life extending medication or even thinking in that direction. But I think in, you know, in the last number of years, there's been a tremendous focus on gene editing. You know, and kind of gene editing as a mechanism mm-hmm. to improving quality of life and to improving treatment efficacy and then, you know, generation of babies through CRISPR and like, all, you know, all of these debates in our scientific literature. And I haven't seen very much about just like life <laughs> extending medicine. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, yeah. so I was intrigued. I was just intrigued by this study.
1: Very interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. I will go out and start mm-hmm. taking it immediately. <laughs>
0: I guess you could look on a larger scale to see if bodybuilders live longer than the rest of us. Oh, but that, I don't think it's been that study's been done yet. Yeah. Mm.
1: All right. We'll, we'll do that one next. All <laughs> right, Chris,
2: what do you what do you got for us? Well, I, I it's funny that that you you should mention the uh, the, the, the I guess the nematodes. Right. There was the, there was a story I was thinking about talking about that. There are two articles that I spotted in The New York Times that both sort of tickled my interest uh one of them was about how certain roundworms seem to be able to detect ultraviolet light and move away from it even though they don't have any eyes and so that there were cellular receptors on the nematodes that allowed them to sort of sense this exposure to radiation in some way that you know utilized a totally different cellular pathway other than like the you know the ability to see per se so but i Couldn't figure out a way of spinning that into a longer narrative. So instead, I I came across (laughs) another story in the New York Times, which actually was even more fascinating. That is a shout out to the Boston University people uh, who study astrophysics. They published this fascinating paper recently about this event that happens on a regular basis where... the, the moon generates a beam of sodium ions that's that fires out like a laser from the backside of the united States, of, of the of the world excuse me and th- the way this works is that you know the moon is constantly being hit by meteorites meteors i guess that they become meteorites after they've hit so they the, the moon is being pulverized and each time it's it's struck it causes a little cloud of dust to fly up into the it's not the atmosphere because there's no atmosphere, but it, it flies up into, you know, away from the surface of the moon. And because these particles are very small, they can stay there suspended for a very long time. And so these particles are like, so basically the moon is surrounded by this sort of invisible sphere of sodium ions. And these sodium ions get sucked up by the, the Earth's gravity and pulled towards the earth. And then they they stream around the earth, sort of forming a halo. Now, at the same time, the moon is going around the earth. And so it's directing this beam of sodium ions in different ways and at the point where the moon and the earth align exactly so that their gravitational fields are perfectly aligned these sodium ion fields that have been transferred from the moon to the earth then eject out the backside the far side of the earth in a more or less straight line like a laser and uh, with special equipment you can see this and and of course we can't see this mm-hmm. but the thought of this is just so so fascinating that unbeknownst to us, our planet is basically firing out this beam of high energy particles into space, kind of like, uh, you know, we're, it's like we're picking up the comet's tail, but here the comet is the moon. And, you know, the the, the the stream of sodium particles that are being driven off the moon towards us are being driven by photons from the sun. So it's, it's like, you know, the, the moon really is literally acting like a comet, where the hmm. tail of these sodium ions is being driven constantly away from the direction of the sun's light and when it hits the earth and at just that right moment where the the beams and the gravitational fields of light you get this blast like a laser of sodium ions off into space and and the thought of that just like shocked my world
1: very cool this is not something i've ever heard anything about
2: yeah, I mean, I wish you could go to, you know, could go to the far side and, and watch it, but you but you can't. No. Because there's nothing to see. But if you had like a, a sodium photometer, I don't know what it would be called. So, sodiometer? A sodiometer. right? You know, this is the best thing that happened to dinners since salt.
1: <laughs> anyway, okay. that's what I wanted to talk about. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, I, for mine, I am going back to the... International Journal of Epidemiology from an article from 2014. This was an article published. The first author was Neil Pierce, who those of us in the epidemiology world know Neil well. And the study, I found out about it because he he tweeted it when I asked the question, what is the piece of work that you have done in your career that you are most proud of? And he, he tweeted back this study to me. The title of the study is The the coli Collaboration. Randomized trials of beer recognition. Ooh! So this is a study that I enjoyed for for two main reasons. Number one, it was it begins with a Frank Zappa quote, which is "To be a country, you need to have a national airline and a national beer." And they begin by pointing out that Tonga no longer has a national airline, but that they do have two national beers, Akale and Royal, both are lagers, and and they presumably where they were on a uh, trip there as part of uh, some research they were doing and decided that they were going to do a, essentially a crossover study, you know, essentially like a taste test type, blinded taste test type study of these two different beers to see if people could tell these different beers apart. I'll just cut to the chase on it, which is that they could not, there was no, you know, The the guessing which beer was which did not differ from the the null hypothesis of, you know, you'd expect 50% of the time you'd be right just by chance. So that is not particularly surprising, given that I find, you know, most lagers taste exactly the same, at least to me. Apologize to all the lager lovers out there. But the second reason I wanted to bring this study up was because, Chris, it reminded me so much of your study that you did, which was a study of the comparison between marmite and vegemite yes. which I would like you to describe for people seminal <laughs>
2: research D- can uh, you describe it well the 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 thing or the study I, I guess study. I, I can I can study the both so marmite for those who are not in the know, the privileged cognizante is a concentrated yeast extract that is the derivative of brewing beer. I think which is where Matt was coming from. It's the mm-hmm. sponge that's basically left on the inside of the pot. And normal people would probably clean it off and throw it away. Um, yes, or if you're a clever would. marketer, you could scrape it off and sell it and add some, you know, salts and say it's a it is a healthy Healthy treat, which is what has happened in much of the, the the British Commonwealth, and I grew up eating Marmite, and I love Marmite. Now there is an, another version of this stuff. There are several versions actually, but the the competitor version is Vegemite. If you remember the you know the uh, Minute Work song from the nineteen eighties, they talk about him. You know, he gave me a Vegemite sandwich. Um, mm-hmm. So Vegemite is a vastly inferior product that uh, tastes like pond scum um, and <laughs> should be avoided at all costs. And to demonstrate this empiric fact, a friend of mine who's from Australia and actually mysteriously had differed in his interpretation of, of, you know, which was better, Marmite or Vegemite, did a small blinded taste test amongst the members of our department where we presented them little bread and butter squares with either Vegemite or Marmite. And we had people rank their their level of deliciousness. And, and, you know, it was really interesting uh, because most of the the participants, I think, were were from America and Mm -hmm. were were brand new to this whole concept of yeast extract on toast. And um, curiously, the reactions were decidedly negative i was i was fascinated by this because it seems like you know everybody loves marmite it's an empiric, obviously you know so it's like a mm-hmm, maxim mm-hmm. you know it's a yeah. uh, it's a truth it's a universal yeah. truth and yet Clearly. somehow we had stumbled into this this small minority of marmite and vegemite exemptors it was mm-hmm. it was hard to explain anyway hard we published explain. the results and the p value was above 0.05 <laughs> but you know we should not focus on p values what what journal did you publish that in again uh, the journal of
1: irreproducible results well done well done our
2: our finest paper ever I believe yeah so I
1: think it goes (laughs) in that same category which is why so it made me think of your study both in that it was a crossover type taste testy type study amongst a small group of researchers most of whom probably were not did not receive proper informed consent (laughs) and no you did in your case I I remember we had to we had to we had to uh, give blood samples didn't we
2: Yes, and a, um, and a, a biopsy.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I thought it just reminded me of your study. So that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or if you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at pophealthdx. You can tweet me at, at propmattfox or chris at id.gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthdx.org. We want to thank... Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and troubleshooting all of our broken computers. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.